We're here because we are taking the first steps, and we're taking them in a contract with the American people. You would have thought, with a positive contract, with positive ideas, with eight reform steps in the opening day, and with ten bills, that the press corps would have finally said, what a difference. What a change from 30-second attack ads. What a change from the usual lack of teamwork and lack of specificity. But instead, we've had the usual carping, the usual complaining, the usual negativism from an all-too-cynical Washington press corps which attacks us for term limits, for balanced budget amendment. One columnist called our contract an airball. As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy. With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. You're listening to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about Congress. In this episode, we look at the history of congressional reform efforts undertaken since the 1970s, analyzing how the changes brought about by post-Watergate wave elections impacted the way Congress operates today. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller of Portland State University in lovely Portland, Oregon. Our first segment is a talk on the impact of wave elections on congressional reform efforts. This speech was given to a panel convened by the National History Center on February 6, 2019. The speaker is John Lawrence, a 38-year veteran staffer on Capitol Hill, former chief of staff for Nancy Pelosi, and author of the book, The Class of 74, Congress After Watergate and the Roots of Partisanship. This was recorded from C-SPAN. Morning. I'm glad uh, to see so many people here interested in what historians have to say about Congress. Lyndon Johnson once said the historians think of congressmen as archaic buffoons with tobacco drool running down their shirts. Uh, I assure you this group has a higher regard for not only for members but for their staffs as well. And thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the class of 74, but I want to talk more broadly about wave elections and congressional reform. Because as I looked at the experience that I, I, experience that I wrote about in my own book, uh, I began to see a lot of parallels, and they began to become more clearer and clearer over the course of the uh, last several months. And I think maybe it's interesting to think of the reforms of 74 in that context uh, of wave elections and who wins, who runs, and what they try to do when they get here. The class of 74 typically is known best uh, as a wave election following Watergate brought in large numbers of new Democrats, and they were mostly known for replacing chairmen, uh, subjecting chairmen uh, to votes of the caucus rather than simply allowing them to reassume uh, their, uh, their positions because of the strict adherence to the seniority system. But as go, I go into in the book a great deal, their, their series of reforms that they initiated went much further and really are explained by some of the, some of the characteristics that are familiar to wave elections more, more broadly. So when we're talking about wave, uh, wave elections, one of the points I want to make sure uh, I make is that the interesting thing is that they've become a much more frequent occurrence. 
Uh, and if you think of, of uh, when the most significant waves occur, you'd look at 74, 94, 2006, 2010, 2018. In all of those cases, with the exception of 1974, the wave election not only brought in large numbers of people, but it also resulted in a flip of control of Congress. That in and of itself is, is a very significant change because it speaks to a whole series of other uh, dynamic changes that are occurring within the electorate and within, within the, uh, the Congress uh, itself, uh, partly as a result of the resorting that political scientists write about and realignment, partly as a result of uh, the, the uh, increases in partisanship, and varying significantly because of a constant fight since the late 1980s for control of Congress, which was not as, as significant an issue, particularly control of the House, uh, from 1932 to, 19, to 1994, a period of 62 years, the Democratic Party was in control of the House of Representatives for all but four years. And so the notion of elections that had the consequence of shifting control, shifting party control, was not really uh, something that was in foremost of either the majority's mind or very often in the minds of the minority, even which many of whose leaders had come to accept the inevitability uh, of uh, being in the minority and reconciling themselves to, to playing that role. Um, so what are some of the commonalities of, of these waves? Well, one is, is that you get a large number of unconventional members and people who often come without long legislative or even political experience, uh, people who are motivated to come into office by a particular issue or by a particular circumstance in the country. One recently, uh, recent Republican consultant said in a wave election, even bozos can get elected. It's often just about grabbing a surfboard at the right, at the right time. And so it brings into office people who have less investment in the institution and greater sense of outrage about whatever it is that's, that's, that's motivated them. Uh, the conundrum about, about these wave elections is that they often occur because uh, the, 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 the base is empowered um, and uh, comes out in large numbers. But the reason, of course, you win a wave election, the reason that you flip control of Congress is not because of the base, it's usually because you win seats in the middle. And so you end up with a resulting uh, caucus which has an energized base because they won the election and now they can presumably effectuate the program that has long been frustrated while they were in the minority. But the leadership and uh, many of their members have to satisfy a less base-oriented electorate in order for them to pass legislation, particularly in a period of partisanship where you can count on fewer votes from the minority party, uh, pass legislation, look effective, uh, and, uh, and run for re-election so that you can perpetuate uh, your majority. Uh, many of these wave elections bring in n uh, not only new people, uh, less experienced people, but younger people. Uh, in my book, I tell a story, I actually open the book with a story about uh, Tom Downey, who was a 25-year-old member uh, elected in 74, uh, being mistaken on the floor uh, as a page. Uh, because he looked about 15 years old and uh, a senior member told him to deliver papers to his office and <laughs> Tom Downey told him to do something you're not supposed to say on the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, Toby Moffat, another young member uh, at, in, in that class said, he said, we were young, we look weird, I can't even believe we got elected. Uh, and I was, I was struck by some of the reports 
just in the last couple of weeks of members who were being kept off elevators uh, because they were being mistaken. So that's pretty typical that you have these younger members who come through. But you also have people, as I say, without the, the kind of back past experience uh, in office. Sometimes that's exaggerated. It wasn't the case of the 74s. About half of them had prior experience, but many of them also had come out of some political movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the consumer rights movement. So they, had ex they were savvy in terms of building grassroots and in terms of building uh, organizational control and relationships with the press. But one thing that is common and if you look at 74, you look at 94, you look at, at uh, uh, 2010 uh, elections, these nominees promoted themselves. They did not necessarily come out of party organizations. As parties have changed in terms of their directing role, both in recruiting, financing, and managing candidates, you have more of these people coming in who are self-motivated candidates, people who did not pass through the very careful sorts of screening processes that, that did when primaries were less responsible for choosing nominees and organizations were. Um, there are always in this group of people a, high, a certain number of high visibility uh, new members, freshman members, uh, who are particularly outspoken or charismatic. Uh, and the press invariably uh, chooses to focus on these people and give them extraordinary amounts of coverage and suggest that their peculiarities or points of view or attitudes uh, are representative of the class. Typically, this isn't true. Typically, the class is uh, as it was in 74, as it is, I think, in 2018, as it was even in uh, 1994, much more conventional uh, than, than one might believe from, from the, the, the press uh, coverage. Another key feature of these of wave elections is that they very often represent a reaction to an incumbent president. So many of these wave elections occur after the first two years. Now, 74 didn't, uh, and, set, and 2006 was in the sixth year of a Bush administration, so it was a little different. But a lot of them, uh, because of the nature of the House that Matt talked about, where you have frequent elections and frequent ability to reverse course, represent one of the peculiarities Woodrow Wilson used to bemoan this in, in his, his famous 1885 book, uh, that you no sooner elect a president than you have a check on that president with a new election, which not only represents a new Congress, but a new constituency constituency in very, in very many cases. So it typically has, uh, there's a lot of motivation if you look at these elections of people coming in with a very decided opposition to the precise election that occurred two years earlier when it was, when it was a, a presidential uh, election. These off-year elections and these wave elections also increasingly are typically nationalized in a way that House elections were very infrequently done. There had been earlier attempts, or actually were attempts by the Republican minority as early as the 1880s, but the best known, of course, is the contract with America in 1994 uh, with uh, Newt Gingrich. Uh, Nancy Pelosi in uh, 2006 had the six for 06. These notions that you're going to have a set series of legislative objectives that the new wave will uh, elect, the new majority will, imp will implement once they're, they're elected. Uh, typically, I think these, these uh, devices tend to be of more value to the incumbent members than they do to the people who are elected as freshmen. The freshmen are basically running in districts that they have to figure out on their own, and often districts that are not necessarily uh, amenable to the kinds of program that the National Democratic Party or the incumbent minority of the House is, is uh, likely to in endorse. And in fact, if you look at the impact of many of these nationalized campaigns, 
1994, notwithstanding the, the, the expectation or the, the reporting, 71% of voters said they had never heard of the contract with America, and 15% uh, more said it had no impact uh, whatsoever in their, uh, in their running. Um, very often the, the issues that propel people, I'm gonna have to move quickly here, so I'll answer more in, in, in the question and answer. Um, are, they're motivated by very high profile issues. In the case of the 74 class, it was Vietnam. In the 94s was deficit in the Clinton tax bill. In 2006, the Iraq war. 2010, Obama, TARP, uh, the health care law. 2018, uh, anti-Trump health care. Uh, very, very, very strong issues tend to unite uh, these wave elections. Um, and very often they have strong moral imperatives behind them. They have, uh, uh, they have ethical or moral issues in, in addition to simply, you know, we're not debating here about transportation formulas. And that tends to result in a lot of people coming in where they're closely associated with issues where it's more difficult to compromise because they view issues in, in right and wrong, black and white, more highly partisan uh, context. Almost always, however, one thing in common with these reform groups is that they have a focus on reform. They have very often run against the corruption of Washington, against the uh, corruption or at least the ineffectuality of Congress. They come in focused on reform and very often that reform is aimed at their own leadership. I know there was a lot of talk uh, obviously recently about challenges to Mrs. Pelosi, but it's not uncommon if you look at the 74 election, if you look at the 94 election, if you look at the 2006 election, there's certainly the 2010 election. The new people coming in, the new majority, certainly have opposition to the, prior, to the president they were running against. <laughs> And they obviously have problems with the old majority that they defeated, but they very often are critical of their own leadership as well. And you see reforms calling for greater transparency, for greater power to subcommittees, for the dissemination of power to newer members, the right to offer additional amendments, the right to be named to key committees, even to exclusive committees. And they, of course, have large numbers so that they have that ability to impose those kinds of, uh, those kinds of changes on, uh, on uh, uh, the leadership. Not surprisingly, they view themselves as having this, as playing this role. They coalesce into a, very often into a, uh, a group, official or otherwise, very quickly after arriving in, in Washington. In 1974, Bob Carr remembers, he said, we were a pain in the ass. We went to Congress to shake things up and we shook things up. Uh, in 1994, the Republican uh, new members referred to themselves as revolutionaries. Uh, and uh, I saw last week that one of the, the new members in 2018 class referred to uh, the new women members as badasses. So, I mean, this is very much in the context. You know, they're coming in, joining an, a, an organizational entity, but simultaneously having the somewhat adversarial relationship uh, to that. To that. And I'll just close by saying, if you look at the effect of these, these wave elections and these reform objectives that they have, they tend to dissipate fairly quickly over time. Um, and there are lots of different reasons for that. One is they run into the institutional pressures that resist uh, the, the, much of the dramatic change. Uh, you know, it's in, uh, as, although, for example, the class of 74 is known as throwing out the chairman. In fact, they only threw out three chairmen, and they were three particularly egregious uh, chairmen. Now, another seven or eight of them left by the time the next Congress uh, took 
uh, took over because they had gotten the message that uh, the, the, they were not going to be able to run the way they did. But uh, most of the structure stays in place. Most of the efforts, for example, to change committees uh, fail. The most success there was in 94, 95, because you had Republicans coming in after having had no vested interest in the House management and House rules for a 40-year period, and Gingrich was able to actually eliminate uh, three committees. But most efforts to really dramatically change committee structure and committee jurisdiction fail because the institutional structure uh, uh, refuses to, uh, to, to allow that to occur. Similarly, efforts to dramatically expand the ability of younger members, newer members, more junior members to offer amendments on the floor and more, rapid, more uh, actively participate in legislation tend to dissipate, and particularly in partisan era since the late 1980s, because that ability to offer more amendments tends to dissipate into uh, a desire to use those amendments for politically motivated purposes rather than for actually improving or, or moving legislation. So that within a relatively uh, short period of time, as David Mayhew and others have pointed out over time, members, even new members, even young members, even the revolutionaries and the badasses tend to be motivated by uh, what drove them into uh, running for office the first time, and that is the desire to get elected and re-elected. And so they focus in on becoming members of the institution, on, uh, on working with senior members, on finding their ways to important committees, on fundraising and district uh, activities. And generally, over time, although there, you, you could argue there are some differences, I would say mostly with the class of 2010, uh, members tend to become institutionalized to the extent to which they remain in Congress. Of course, in many cases, uh, you don't have people remaining in Congress very long. Many of them never thought they were going to remain very long because the nature of waves is you elect people on the margin and certain numbers of those people within four or six years are no longer in Congress. The ones who do remain obviously have lots of motivations for buying into the institutional interests and that reform tends to have dissipated and in some ways plant the seeds for the next wave of reform. Thank you. Mr. Lawrence mentions a number of important wave elections over the past half century, 1974, 1994, 2006, 2010, and 2018. Of these five elections, 1994, also referred to as the Republican Revolution, had the most significant long-term impact on the way Congress does business. The following piece, produced by Retro Report in August 2022, examines the reason the 1994 elections went the way they did and discusses the impact of the Republican victory on politics to this day. Republicans now are beginning to talk openly about taking control of the House and the Senate. Sometimes midterms can be not that interesting. Voters aren't paying attention in the way they are surrounding a presidential election. The stakes often seem lower. But the 1994 election was, without a doubt, one of the most significant of the 20th century. This is one of the most profound days in American history. We didn't do what the people wanted us to do. I must certainly bear my share of responsibility, and I accept that. It brought to the fore some of these ideas that are still with us. It was just a tremendous landmark election. You know people who've lost their jobs, well, yeah. lost their homes. Uh -huh. Bill Clinton was far and away the best 
politician I've ever seen. In my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. He had that easy way of communicating. He could take the most complex idea and explain it in ways that ordinary people could understand. That combination is lethal. But just two years into his presidency, Bill Clinton's centrist charm had already worn off for many Americans. Many Democratic candidates are keeping their distance from the president. Despite fashioning himself a new kind of Democrat in his run for president, they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. Clinton had tried to walk a political tightrope that still accomplished liberal policy ideals. Solving our nation's health care crisis. Along with tapping the First Lady to lead a failed attempt at universal health care, he signed a policy known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that allowed gays to serve anonymously in the military and supported a 10-year ban on high-capacity firearms as part of a major anti-crime bill. A midterm election, people think that it's a referendum on the sitting president, and it usually is. Clinton and the Democrats were not all that popular in 1994, and the Republicans really worked to capitalize that. Dance lessons, midnight basketball, new restrictive gun controls. The rallying cry for Republicans that year was God, guns, and gays. God, let's take a religion into account, anti-abortion. Gays, because Clinton had signed the uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell bill, and guns, because an assault weapons ban had been passed. It was this culture war strain. Here is Rush Limbaugh. As you know, my friends, we count the days of the raw deal. That's what we call the Clinton administration. It's Fueling the Clinton opposition, a new media was consuming American politics, talk radio. Millions of listeners tuned in each day to hear conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh rail against Clinton and his policy proposals. The motto of this administration every day is what can we do to fool them today? What can we get away with today? One of the reasons that presidents drop among persuadable voters is because they sort of lose control of their agenda. I found a memo that I had done to Clinton two or three weeks before the election saying, you know, this isn't going to turn out well. Doing whatever they want without any regard for the American people. In the early 1990s, a relatively unknown congressman from Georgia had grabbed the spotlight by going into attack mode against the Democrats. In that they are cheerfully spending their children and their grandchildren's money. Now sensing that the time was ripe for upending 40 years of Democratic control of the House, Newt Gingrich fielded a slate of Republican candidates committed in their conservatism. Democrats are seen as the party of big government. And this is what Republicans were running against. They wanted to say, we're outsiders, we're coming in, we're going to shake up the system. I was not only disinterested in running for Congress, I had not even run for student council in high school. And it was really my wife whispering in my ear that I needed to consider running, and so I did. For 14 years, Steve Largent had been a star-wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks setting records across the NFL during a Hall of Fame career. After retiring and moving back to Oklahoma, he joined a new wave of conservatives hoping to make their mark in 1994. There was a gut reaction for a lot of Americans to send a message to this president. The next speaker of the People's House, Newt Gingrich. Recognize that if America fails, our children will live on a dark and bloody planet. 
If the American people accept this contract, we will have begun the journey to renew American civilization. Just weeks before the midterm elections, Gingrich summoned the Republican House candidates from across the country to sign what he called the Contract with America, a 10-point blueprint for how they would use their newfound power to shrink government within the first hundred days. Gingrich said the contract gives Republicans more to campaign on than just Clinton bashing. The contract with America nationalized the midterm election in a way that midterms often are not. They focus grouped it and they honed it down to a lot of fiscal ideas, balancing the budget, reducing the deficit. It was a way to activate the troops and sort of talking points that these young Republican candidates could use. Having a contract with America was valuable in the sense that it gave us a playbook to operate from. I don't think anybody who touted the contract with America ever thought they were gonna have to actually do the things that they were saying. By sunrise, the shift in power was so seismic, the earth under the Capitol might as well have moved. Republicans are all smiles this morning. Republicans take control of Congress. On November 8th, 1994, the Republican tidal wave hit Washington. For the first time in four decades, the GOP took over both houses of Congress, sending 73 newly minted congressmen and women to D.C. This is not a mandate to move in a particular direction. I would like somebody to explain to me what a mandate would look like. This is not the time to get moderate. This is not the time to start gaining the approval of the people you've just defeated. For decades, the Democrats and the Republicans together had a joint orientation about how government works. Well, the Republican freshmen in 1994 wanted none of that. They had their own orientation, and they invited Rush Limbaugh to be their guest speaker. I want to warn you, you will never, ever be their friends. <laughs> Throughout 1995, Clinton and his allies in Congress thwarted much of Gingrich's proposed contract with America, but the focus then shifted to passing a federal budget. For Gingrich and his followers, this was the time to dig in their heels. Republican leaders, however, say they will not send the president the legislation he wants. No, we will not send him clean bill. Why? Because we want the president to sit down and negotiate. Newt Gingrich thought he could show down Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton would fold, but Bill Clinton didn't fold. And as a result, there was a government shutdown. So with little more than 72 hours left to a possible shutdown. Federal workers across the nation will be off work at midnight unless some kind of compromise is reached. At this point, however, that doesn't appear likely. Americans didn't like this. It's really a bad time for this to be happening. I blame all of them. It looked like we couldn't manage our business. As the shutdown dragged on, becoming the longest in U.S. history to that point, Gingrich finally agreed to compromise over the objections of many House Republicans who felt he was giving in. I didn't think it was the right decision that he made, but sometimes you have to make tough calls, and you can't please everybody that you're representing. It was a real education in politics for a lot of us about how the system worked or sometimes didn't work. After the bitterness of the shutdown, President Clinton and the House Republicans did work together to pass major and often controversial new legislation. Actually, in 1996, a lot of legislating got done. People might have problems with it, but the Republicans and the Democrats worked together in a way that would seem almost foreign to us now and passed a lot of stuff. 
Today we are taking an historic chance to make welfare what it was meant to be, a second chance, not a way of life. Together, Clinton and the Republicans slashed funding for social welfare programs and barred the federal government from recognizing same-sex marriage, a conservative vision that infuriated liberal Democrats but helped Clinton get re-elected to a second term. That was the message that things could get done in divided government. But outrageously high-handed, discouraging... The legacy of the Gingrich era has just been this toxic environment. Now we're kind of fighting the same fights. The newest front in the culture war. Gays, whether you can talk about this in schools, abortion bans. This decision is an outrage. Or assault weapons. The political agenda of the left of disarming law-abiding citizens. We're walking over to the Capitol right now, and I don't know, maybe we'll break down the doors. This negative polarization has overtaken American government to the point where it just makes it much, much harder to govern. One feature of the contract with America that was lower profile but very impactful was the process reforms Gingrich promised would be passed on day one. They read as follows. First, require all laws that apply to the rest of the country also apply equally to the Congress. Second, select a major independent auditing firm to conduct a comprehensive audit of Congress for waste, fraud, or abuse. Third, cut the number of House committees and cut committee staff by one-third. Fourth, limit the terms of all committee chairs. Fifth, ban the casting of proxy votes in committee. Sixth, require committee meetings to be open to the public. Seventh, require a three-fifths majority vote to pass a tax increase. Eighth, guarantee an honest accounting of the federal budget by implementing zero baseline budgeting. Not all of these reforms passed, but the cumulative impact of the reforms that did pass was nothing short of a reworking of the way Congress did business. Most significantly, Gingrich's process revolution shifted the center of legislative gravity away from committees and into the Speaker's office, making the leadership team of the majority party the main driver of legislation and the main locus of deal-making. The following piece, read by our own Bob Sharp, was written by Ron Elving of NPR, published on January 16, 2018, under the title, Eight congressional chairmen are calling it quits. Here's why and what it could mean. This article examines one way the Gingrich Revolution continues to affect Congress. Take it away, Bob. Capitol Hill Republicans are nervous about November. The margins of the majority are dwindling in both chambers. It's looking like a good year to run as a Democrat, and President Trump isn't helping with his weak polls and potent controversies. But at least one of the woes affecting the current majority on the House side has its roots in the politics of a generation ago, and its power to shape elections even now testifies to the enduring legacy of a leader who left the halls of power long ago, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich was the one-time college professor with the signature shock of white hair who ran the House back in the 1990s. He was a speaker for only four years, but his impact on Congress and on American political life in general is quite real. Among other things, Gingrich engineered the rule changes that today have committee chairs and other powerful senior Republicans headed for the exits. An eye-popping eight chairs have called it quits, leading an even larger pack of more than 30 Republicans voluntarily leaving the chamber. That is close to half of all the committee chairs. In past generations, these chairs were the masters of the agenda, ruling based on their seniority and longevity. They kept their grip on the gavels until they, or the Almighty, decided otherwise. Then came Gingrich. The long-shot candidate of the 1970s and brash backbencher of the 1980s had, by the mid-1990s, reached the top of the GOP leadership in the House. 
With his bold strategizing and prescient appeals to populism, Gingrich helped his party break through to its first majority in 40 years. But Gingrich, as a speaker, was not content with whipping the Democrats once. He wanted Republicans to become a permanent majority party, and he wanted to run the House without too much interference from committee chairs who might or might not share the spirit of 94 or revel in the Gingrich Revolution. Never a great fan of seniority's sacred status. Gingrich let it be known he planned to have the chairmanships determined by the will of all the majority members, guided, of course, by their leader. If the Speaker's interview with a prospective chair went well, so be it. If not, well, Gingrich showed he was willing to pass over the most senior and even the second or third most senior member of a panel to find the chairman who would work with him. Moreover, Gingrich took on seniority when he embraced the concept of term limits. Nothing could be more inimical to seniority than term limits, which in effect convert seniority from an asset to a disqualification for office. Term limits were part of the much-ballyhooed contract with America, a list of ideas the House pledged to vote for in its first hundred days under Republican control. It turned out to be one item they couldn't pass, if only because it required a two-thirds majority to amend the Constitution. To placate the disappointed backers of term limits, Gingrich agreed to a rule change limiting the terms of committees and subcommittee chairs. It may also have occurred to the Speaker, at least in passing, that the chairs who were lame ducks might be easier to keep in line. There was fierce resistance from a few of the most senior members, of course. The venerable Henry Hyde of Illinois called the term limits a distortion born of angry, pessimistic populism. But the change proved popular with the huge freshman class that had been elected in 1994, and soon it became the new normal. But the difficulty of finding a new goal or objective has become a powerful inducement for House chairs to find their next horizon off the hill. For some, such as retiring Jeb Hensel-Arling and Lamar Smith, both Texans, the choice seems obvious. As chair of the House Financial Services Committee, Hensarling has many excellent connections to the world of money. As chair of science, space, and technology, Smith too is well acquainted with a world in which his expertise will be welcome and well remunerated. Will Congress miss the eight chairs leaving at the end of this year? Surely, in some measure. The House in particular seems in need of the knowledge and civility that often come with greater experience. And the spectacle of so many senior members heading for the door at once creates a discouraging atmosphere for the midterm cycle a bad omen for maintaining the party's majority. At the same time, plenty of other Republicans will, of course, be more than willing to step up into the big armchairs and begin posing for their own oil paintings as committee chairs. Seniority will once again play its outsized role, but youth will also be served in a way it almost never was in the old system, sans limits. And it must be said, all this was very much what Speaker Gingrich had in mind nearly a quarter of a century ago. You've been listening to the Two Ring Circus Podcast, Episode 4, Surfing the Wave. Tune in next time for Episode 5, Herding Cats, where we will examine the way the leadership teams function in the House and the Senate in the post-Gingrich era. 